Tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have a brutally overdue Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. You sent in so many questions this week. Actually needed to have my man Tim Falkowitz split them in two for two shows. The only bad thing here, it's a Thursday night at 9.24 p.m. Our cat Rocky is currently crawling around my desk here. I don't know what he wants, but he wants something. My wife who just did insane things today at physical therapy, three-hour session. Uh, she, uh, We just got her into, uh, into the shower, pay off for a long, hard day of work on her end, trying to recover from the mobility issues we have spoken about many times. And now it's time to talk about IndyCar. So normally I'd try and fill you in on a bunch of stuff before we get going through Q&A. I don't think we have time to do that because it's almost 9.30. I've just had to warm up some coffee to get ready for this. And we're leaving out somewhat early in the morning tomorrow for another long day of stuff. So we'll tell you briefly that was hoping to have our very first silly season story ready to go bright and early in the morning. That's not going to happen. I still have to get that done. A fun interview with Alex Pelot that will get moving here shortly. Also have a feature on Graham Rahal heading into his home race at Mid-Ohio. I think you might like, and it's not because the quality of the writing, we know that's garbage, but just the subject and what we're talking about. So I'm going to try and whip up as much of that as I can to get that published before Saturday's opener of the doubleheader weekend here, the Honda Indy 200 On the quick subject of silly season, boy, I thought this was going to be a relatively boring one before I started making calls about a week ago. I have been very wrong, very wrong. So there's a lot of news to come here. Hopefully you will find that amusing, compelling, or something. Last quick note to mention, if you haven't listened to the show before, it's a loose conversational thing. I refer to it as my unpolished turd, just like I struggle to say the word conversational. I'm going to leave all that stuff in. I normally do that. I just figure this is the truest version of myself, answering your questions, stumbling over some of the words, mispronouncing things, just being an idiot in general. For those of you that know me, this is me. So I just try and make the show as authentic as it can be. Sometimes we'll do a 5, 10, 20-minute preamble about what's going on at home, other observations, sometimes like today slash tonight. We're going to get rocking with your questions here within the first two or three minutes. So let's do this. I greatly appreciate those who say, hey, want to learn about IndyCar, kind of sort of newish to it a little bit. And we have someone by the name of Rebecca who has said, I think I might like IndyCar, but I got a lot to learn. So here on the good old Twitters, said to her, please, got a question, send it in. And why don't we open up the show with this here? Because, yeah, it's great when we do the super inside baseball stuff and it's all minutia-based. Let's go with Rebecca's opening question, though. Just wanting to know about push to pass, what it is, why it is, where it came from. Easiest way I can describe this, Rebecca Boy, when you take a bunch of cars that are super spec, everything is nearly identical. 
performance levels are therefore nearly identical. Push to pass was a, a construct, an idea, just to try and make passing a little bit easier. And it's been one of the banes of mostly spec, if not completely spec, racing's existence since it became somewhat commonplace late 90s, early 2000s and onwards. So we have turbocharged engines today. There's extra boost when you push the good old button. It gives you a little shot of extra horsepower for a finite period of time. It's kind of like a little push, just a little push in the back to help you try and get by somebody. Uh, In some cases, it could be used to defend if you think you've done a poor job of getting off of whichever corner and the person chasing you you think might have done a better job, well, you can use push to pass to try and regain a little bit of an advantage to prevent from being passed. It's an interesting idea, maybe. I don't really love it because I think of it as a bit of a Band-Aid. So, again, from a basic standpoint, this was a, okay, it's not always really easy to pass with these cars, these kinds of cars, this is a bit of a method, call it a gimmick, if you want to be really, really honest, a gimmick that will improve the chances of drivers being able to pass one another. Formula One has an aerodynamic equivalent of push-to-pass. It's their drag reduction system, which if you get within one second of the car ahead of you through certain timing beacons throughout the lap, uh, you get the rear flap to lay down automatically, Uh, In some instances during sessions during the weekend, it can be manually operated and you are able to pick up a lot of top speed. And often in F1, it can be a little bit cartoonish. Just go flying by like the person in front is kind of at a standstill almost. With what IndyCar does with their push to pass today, said to be about 40 horsepower on the road and street courses only where they're already making roughly 700 horsepower so adding 40 certainly a great thing but it's not a giant kind of space launch afterburners takeoff crazy explosion of power and so there were periods in the past rebecca where push to pass came with a pretty darn significant hike in horsepower where the name actually fit the description push to pass, pushed it, and you could pass. Like, it was really that strong of an assistance. Hasn't really been that way for a little while. So it helps. There's also some strategery in how it gets used in the races. You'll find quite often this weekend at Mid-Ohio, for example, you'll see those that qualify poorly. They're probably going to be on the push to pass button a whole bunch early in the race to try and make up positions using that extra power as a frequent tool to improve, effectively compensate for bad day of qualifying. Often see the front runners, whose cars we can naturally assume handling better, performing at a higher level, tend to be a little bit more sparse in the use of push to pass because they might not need it. Also have to be mindful of, you know, the really obvious thing here. Well, hey, if you're making more power, doesn't that more power need more fuel? Well, yeah. So every time you hit that push to pass button, cool. 
it's a fun thing and you get to go a little bit faster and you might be able to pass whomever you're also consuming more fuel which means that you're going to either not be able to make as many laps on a full tank or just simply have to wait on pit lane longer for that tank to be filled to a greater degree than maybe some of your rivals who have either been saving fuel or just used push to pass less so yeah the idea hey passing is not always the easiest thing in these kinds of cars this is a little bit of a workaround but it's not a free play all day kind of thing get a certain number of seconds per race and once you use that up well sorry you're done but again it's always interesting to listen or try and observe who's on the button and who's not and how frequently and there is a bit of a rhythm you know like i said the person that qualifies 20th by the end of the race they're probably going to be down to zero seconds the person that's running up front uh the top couple of cars probably going to have decent amount left also something where naturally the driver in second place or third or fourth whatever trying to get onto the podium maybe even a win they might be a little bit more aggressive with it just to try and help overcome uh, that difficulty in passing for a meaningful result you also will see a little bit of that defense possibly of uh, the leader knowing that hey let me use this a little bit to try and build a gap and then i'll try and maintain it so the original premise is modified a little bit it's become more of a strategical tool than just an outright aha i get the uh the good old mario kart boost and now i'm going a million miles an hour it's a little bit more of that i wish it would go away and i don't like it but that's just me so thanks for asking the question rebecca seriously uh love questions like this from those who just want to learn more about indycar and whether it's push to pass or things that are super basic or super complex please do not hesitate to continue sending those in that offer always stands for the rest of you as well so thanks rebecca also want to say a big thanks to our partners at cooper tires and the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com bell racing helmets usa as well they all make our little show possible here and uh we just love them by we i mean me i don't know why i continue to say we when it's just me but you know like i said bit of an idiot we're just gonna go in that direction let's move on to where should we go chapin 17 hey marshall we're over halfway through this year's indycar season and i find myself the least interested i've been in a season in years it seems like that for a lot of other fans. As I felt less buzz around the car season than usual, I don't know what it is. The lack of fans, the weird schedule, or the racing maybe not being as good as it's been in the past. But whatever it is, just not found a spark in this IndyCar season. Going to speak to that first and then get to the rest of the note here. I hear you. I can't really argue. I, mean, I love IndyCar. You all know I love IndyCar. It's been a... Th- massive passion of mine since i was single digit age this year hasn't been normal in any way i say this as a resident of the san francisco bay area who yesterday woke up to the sky glowing orange at whatever am and feeling like the end was here uh seemingly we wake up every day and someone we love has died whether it is the king of wakanda 
to, I don't even know, even obscure folks where you go, yeah, I don't really remember too much about that person, but even them to, I mean, obviously with our election coming up here, it's nonstop one side hating the other side, everyone's wrong, etc. Uh, I I would just suggest maybe that some of the lack of luster with the overall IndyCar season so far maybe fit perfectly, as you've noted here, about a year that, ooh, <laughs> this, is, this is a 365-day dumpster fire. I mean, it just sucks. And it seems like the new levels of suckitude are, are plumbed and explored almost on a daily basis. So, of course, I'm kidding a little bit. There are obviously some amazing things that have happened as well. But what I would suggest might be an option or a possibility based on my own observations. There's enough going on in the world, if not at home, that all of us are dealing with that being in the mental space to lock into our favorite things that play out over a relatively long period of time. Most IndyCar seasons start around March and September-ish, early October. Obviously, we all have normal things that take our time, whether it's kids or school or whatever. We got enough of our own lives going on, but in a normal year, we can fit IndyCar racing in, track it, follow it, get plugged in, not get pulled out too much. I I could just tell you from what it's like as a guy that has worked in IndyCar for a long time, now reports on IndyCar, I get ripped out of it, not necessarily every day, but multiple times per week. And it's just what's going on at home with my wife and I and the things that we're trying to conquer on her behalf to just all the crazy stuff with COVID, financial impacts, and so on. So I wonder if that might be the thing, because I know that there's been really good on-track racing at many events, not all, but at many events, but it just seems like it's harder to get plugged in and stay connected since the world is kind of hitting us with you name it on a daily basis and in a unrelenting, if not punishing way. So I wonder if that's some of it or part of it, Chapman 17. I don't know if it's more than that, but I know that that's certainly a feeling that floats through my brain on a semi-regular basis. Another thing we need to acknowledge with this jumbled schedule we've been working from, we opened with an oval. We went to, what, three road course events then we went to two ovals then we went to another oval then we went to what a couple more oval races the oval races normally get broken up in our calendar to where we're gonna start the year with maybe one oval who knows one oval in around the near early part of the season but quite often couple road and street courses, if not three or four or whatever, sprinkle in some oval races throughout. But the the pacing of the calendar might be another thing that we need to acknowledge. And I wanted to start with this as the first 
kind of deeper question for the show because I just thought it was a really great observation of yours here. If we look at the normal pacing of the normal non-COVID year, there's a lot of schedule and circuit-based variety. We're going to open on a, let's say, a street course. Then I know it's been a year or two since we went to Phoenix, but then we'll go to a one-mile oval. Then we'll maybe go to a road course at Barber. Then maybe we'll go to a street course at Long Beach. And then after that, again, who knows where we might go. We might go to Mid-O, well, not Mid-Ohio, but might go to Indy Road Course. We might, we're going to move around to a variety of things that, in terms of racing discipline, keeps us on our toes. And it's hard to build trends in terms of a lot of matchy-matchy tracks one after the other that are very similar and might play to the strengths of certain teams or drivers. This year has been a bit of the opposite. Uh, We are really, with this condensed calendar, instead of 17 races, we're down to 14. Opened with an oval, a couple of road course events, then just a big chunk of ovals in the middle. And now we're going to close the year with a big chunk of road and street courses. Where this gets, I think, a little bit conspiratorial in the loving the competition you might have seen. IndyCar's oval races after, I mean, Texas was pretty good, I would say, in terms of fun and competition and passing. I would say Iowa wasn't great. I know that we had some crashes and there was some drama, but in terms of, whoa, look at the passing and the wheel-to-wheel craziness, there was some of it. It wasn't a ton. Indy 500? Uh, wasn't a ton. Then we get to Worldwide Technology Raceway, Chapin 17, and it's a bit of a stinker. Uh, first race had more passing than the last or than the second. Obviously we had the Sato and what is it? Sato and Pato, uh, that little bit of banging wheels and whatnot. Obviously we had the Colton and Renus coming together and, you know, there were a couple things happening there. There just wasn't much passing. So I wonder if this is part of it as well, where it's like, oh, okay, well that was all right. It wasn't, oh, okay. We got another track. Oh, hey, and we're going to close the doublehead. Oh, boy, that wasn't great either. That's the feeling that I have. I don't know if it's the feeling you have, but instead of having this cool schedule diversity in a normal year, I think the way it's panned out, blocks, and then another block, and then we're going to close now with a block. I'm hoping things get really good as we move from doubleheader at mid-Ohio, doubleheader Indy Road Course again, and then hopefully close on the streets of St. Petersburg. So, But I hear you. I can't argue. Uh, And then you take Scott Dixon, (laughs) winning the first three, adding a fourth, seemingly always being in or around the podium and just racking up points, and it's going to take some miracles for him to not win the championship. So maybe we've even lost a bit of the curiosity factor as well. The year doesn't deserve a asterisk or anything like that. It's been a real season. Whoever wins, whatever deserves it. But I don't know if we're going to be looking back, Chapin 17, on 2020 as just a year 
full of huge love and happiness. And boy, we'll never forget that one. We're never going to forget it. Just not necessarily for the right reasons. And then you close here. You say, uh, talking about the not so compelling IndyCar season. This was further compounded uh, while I watched the Formula One race last weekend at Monza, where Pierre Gasly won in an Alpha Tori of all things after a roller coaster 18 months, both professionally and personally for him. Uh, there haven't really been any storylines like that this year, which intrigued me, like, say, Kyle Kaiser bumping Fernando Alonso at the Indy 500 last year, Robert Wickens' incredible rookie year. So I was just wondering if you feel the same for it's just me. Certainly not you would just not push back a little bit, but just suggest there is this kid named Patricio Award from Mexico who in his first full season of IndyCar is currently sitting third in points. Back to the Dixon thing. It'd take a, something pretty close to a miracle uh, for him to challenge and take a title from Scott Dixon but at the pace he's been going, the quality of driving he's been doing for a team that last year, as uh, what we now call Aero McLaren SP, last year was Aero SPM, they really didn't do much last year. They were probably the biggest disappointment of 2018. They went through this whole youthification process, deciding to go with what, 23-year-old Oliver Askew and 21-or-so-year-old Patricio Ward. And Oliver's been, you know, learning on the job. Rough year at some points, strong year at others. The kid's going to be fine. He's going to be a freaking superstar here in, in the years to come. But consider a team that was nowhere last year, super disappointed, big scandal with the ESPN, the body, issue thing with Hinch parts ways with Hinch. Holy crap. Are you kidding me? Pato and ask you get all kinds of hate from Hinch's many, many lovers and supporters. And there's maybe even people actively rooting against these young pups. And here we have Pato award who is sitting third in the standings on merit, right? It's not like the guy has just been the beneficiary of oh these cars crashed on the final lap and that's why he got to the podium and some sort of other misfortune of, of others or strategy mistakes they've earned it so i realize that we don't have the holy cow robbie wickens thing out of left field like we had in 2018 and gasly's thing i mean good lord that's the best also have to be honest their decision to pit when they pitted it's the whole thing that made that race win possible. It doesn't change the fact that it's amazing, but it's not like the kid qualified on the pole, flipped Lewis Hamilton the bird, and drove to victory from lap one. But nonetheless, I hear you. We haven't had these big holy cow things like we expected. Might throw in Takuma Sato, right? Uh, leading up to the Indy 500, he was 17th in points, I believe. I had serious questions as, the, as to whether he was going to be retained were asked back, not because he was doing so badly, but just was starting to look like, ooh, all right, is he finally not as crisp as he's been? Wins the Indy 500, backs it up with a second at the following race, currently sitting fourth in the standings. 
another, I would say, amazing, amazing thing. You look at some of the rookies as well. Alex Pillow, that kid's just a little puppy wagging his tail, loving life like you wouldn't believe. He's second in the rookie standings right now with the smallest team in the field at Dale Coyne. Uh, There's some stuff here. There's also, if you like the kind of grimy, the dirt, well, hey, here we are, what, nine races into the season, five to go. The biggest team in the series, Andretti Autosport, goose egg, nothing, zero wins. Unbelievable. Uh, Alexander Rossi, the guy who, if you've watched any IndyCar prior to this season, you'd say, oh, who, who are my top three championship contender favorites? Rossi's one of those three guaranteed. He's 18th in points. Holy crap. Unbelievable. He's behind rookie Oliver Askew and rookie Alex Pillow. It's mental. Uh, hey, if again, back to the positive, Felix Rosenquist got his first win. So I'm not saying all these things are big, monumental items. Of course, they're not all that way. But if you want to look at where our expectations probably should be for this year, which is low, oh, there, there's some stuff in there, right? Ed Carpenter, Ovalmeister, probably the one of the top two or three most talented oval drivers in the series. His worst oval season to date starts off with a fifth at Texas, which is amazing. Then never finishes any better than 15th. Actually, following Texas, he had a 15th. This at the first round of Iowa. After that, he never finished inside the top 19 I mean, he finished 20th at the first gateway, but basically the majority of Ed Carpenter, the guy we look to as the standard bearer for oval racing quality, the last four races, four of his six races, he is 20th or worst. It's crazy. So I don't know. <laughs> The more I look at it, maybe the more I realize this has just been a, uh, boy, this has been a strange year. To your point, it's been strange. Hasn't always been as entertaining as we hope. But maybe there's some kernels in there that with a little bit of a, a, a finer lens on the microscope, maybe, maybe we found a few things that actually, yeah, not so bad. Uh, let's, let's go to Ben Cohen. Hey, Ben. says, MP. Can you discuss how teams such as Dale Coin Racing react to weekends such as the one where the number 18 car driven by Santino Ferrucci had in the pits? He's referring to the doubleheader, most recent doubleheader on the St. Louis Oval. He says, are there assignment changes, strategy changes for personnel, or is it back to the grind with more practice? Uh, and he also says, I understand a position change was made. He says, I'm sure every team handles each situation differently. Um, also says, did any of the teams you're a part of have a colossal, colossal pit miscue, um, that you can remember also says, uh, thanks and continued thoughts to you and your strong lady. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. So a little bit of stuff here. We got a, seriously, we got an insane amount of questions to get through. So I'm going to try and rifle through these as quickly as I can. 
so we can keep the show at a reasonable length. Probably going to try and do a part two if I can, but we'll see. So coming out of 2019, where Santino Ferrucci was the, call it the second driver at Dale Coyne Racing, the number two driver. Lead driver was Sebastian Bourdais. Sebastian had his crew chief, Todd Phillips, that he brought with him to coin the two of them from Newman Haas Racing back in the day, his championship winning crew chief slash chief mechanic. Seb helped form a lot of the team and crew members that surrounded him at Dale's team when he went back there. And Santino, with the second entry, the one that we could call Dale's entry, the primary entry, the one that Sebastian drove, that's the one co-entered with Jimmy Vassar, James Sully Sullivan, with Dale's entry, the one with Santino last year, that was helmed by a good, good man, veteran of the sport and just a really excellent guy, Roy Wilkerson, coming out of 2019 with Dale having cut Sebastian uh that was the question ben what would they do in terms of team composition would santino now that he's the veteran knowing that alex polo as we learned would be coming in as the new driver slash second driver in the team would that then we assume bump santino up to quote sebastian's team Uh, we know that he's driving the car in the same colors right same sponsor so Really, you look at it from the outside and you might say, oh, only thing that has changed in that Dale Coyne racing with Vassar Sullivan number 18 entry is the driver in the car. Everything else about that car and the people take care of it, that must be Sebastian's team because it all that appears to be the only major change. It's not what happened. We had Santino who decided no. I really like my crew and I want to continue working with them. So he specifically asked for continuity there. So this is a part where you go, all right, I don't know how to explain this exactly. Same car that Sebastian drove colors, number, you name it. Same entry Dale coin racing with Vassar Sullivan, but a different driver and the crew from the second car last year so i'm not sure how to describe that ben did santino quote get promoted up to the call it lead car or did they just change colors and numbers on the second team that he was a part of i'm not sure how to describe that adequately but that's basically what happened and so with alex palo new kid to the series new everything He's had Sebastian's crew. If you, again, just calling, referring to it as that, because Seb is really was the architect of helping put that together. And what we have seen is there have been problems with Santino's car in the pits. And if you happen to remember last year, Ben, there were a lot of problems in the pits with Santino's entry. And the mistakes being made weren't criminal, right? Not like, oh my goodness, this is sheer incompetence. Not at all, not by any means. Just the little things that you could get wrong were being gotten wrong 
and gotten wrong again and again and again. And so instead of this being what crazy thing went wrong at this race and then at the next one, what other randomly crazy, bizarre thing where you go, oh my goodness, this must just be the galaxy telling you that we're going to hit you over the head with a cartoon anvil. That really wasn't the case. It was just a lot of routine, repetitive errors last year with the option to move up to Sebastian's crew in championship caliber, championship winning, you name it, said, no, sticking with my guys. Good on Santino for placing that faith. In this very tough year where a lot of crews have not had a chance to do adequate pit stop practice, which we saw during the first, what, three, four, five races, it seemed everybody, Penske, just run down the list. Teams where you go, they never make mistakes. Even they were making mistakes. Well, same thing was happening with Santino. Where things maybe diverged a bit, Ben, to get to the answer to your question, before having to, obviously having to paint a little bit of the background so folks understand, there's a bit of a point, and I'd be lying if I said I remember exactly when it happened during the season, but there was a point where we more or less stop seeing the routine pit lane errors across all teams. Folks got caught up. Folks got the practice they need, fell back into the groove, was no longer a significant topic of conversation. Unfortunately, uh, Santino's entry is one where that, you might say, really didn't happen or didn't happen as often enough. And turning that page which happened with most other entries, did not turn with his. And so after two days of running very strong in St. Louis and in both instances having mistakes on pit lane that were not of his making, that really did conspire against strong results. Team decided to let Roy go. And yeah, I hate it for him. It's understandable uh i don't know if i've been in that exact position i don't think i have but i know i've gotten things wrong for sure um i mean i've yeah i've run cars out of fuel twice i i I (laughs) firmly remember those as i was speaking about with our line dyke on our guest weekend indycar episode boy you know, the good good days are great. The bad days, just they're like wounds, permanent wounds. So if I'm talking about, boy, those times where you just felt like the biggest jerk on the planet, I've absolutely been there. And, you know, unless it's Roy making the mistake himself, he's still the, he's the top manager of the car. So, You know, poop doesn't roll downhill in those instances. It rolls right up to him. You're in charge. Your crew is making these mistakes. We need to bring in a different coach of the car, different head coach for the vehicle to try and root out whatever problems we have so these are no longer an issue. So important, I would say, to note that this is what Santino asked for after a tough 2019 season where a lot of mistakes were had, but... I also give him credit for wanting to have the same team and hoping they would improve and get rid of these errors. Didn't pan out that way, but this kind of change, sometimes it's also a psychological thing that's needed. You 
need folks to see there's a going to be something different. We're going to break this string. This feels like every time the car comes in, we're, we're almost surprised if there's no problems. Got to get rid of it. Got to kill that as quickly as you can. So one of the methods, unfortunately, that we've seen in pro sports when a team is in a bad way, uh, spiraling downwards in whatever league, it's often the head coach that gets changed. In this situation, it's the head coach of the car. Yeah, having run two cars out of fuel during IndyCar races, uh, when I was assistant engineer and fuel strategist guy, yeah, I can just tell you that not only <laughs> not only do you understand the true look of hatred and resentment from your fellow team members if you've never seen that before. You, you get it. You understand real quick and catalog it. It's one of those things you can do once and you can write off as like, okay, statistically, across however many IndyCar races I've done or will do, whatever, doing this once, okay that, that that's it's going to happen once to probably everybody twice you really got to start asking yourself about your practices um and so that's no different than pit stops uh, it's the same wheel same tire same wheel nut basically everybody uses the same type of wheel gun there could be there are different vendors but this is something where you have 23 cars. They all have four wheels and tires. They all perform roughly the same number of pit stops per race. And by the numbers, Ben, if 20 to 21 of those cars go throughout the entire race with no major pit stop errors and your team happens to have one, and then you go to the next race with the same 23-ish cars with the same four wheels on their vehicles and 20 to 21-ish, whatever, get through unscathed, and here you are again with your team having problems. You can't look at the math. The math is not going to save you. And so, yeah, as a guy who's made the same mistake at least twice and really got ripped all kinds of new body parts, and had to go to a bit of a dark place mentally to ask myself what I was doing, where I was going wrong, how I led myself into places that were just totally a foul of quality. <sighs> this is not something to gloat over, to be happy over. And I know you're not saying any of that, but you know, getting rid of a crew chief because of, of errors, whether it's their own or their, their, the folks that report to them. Um, that's a stinging thing that's going to last. So, yeah, that bums me out a little bit. Uh, let's see. Where are we going to go next? Uh, Shauna Oakwood. Hey, Shauna. Hey, pal. Thanks for uh, sending in some more fun stuff here. Said so you mentioned on a recent podcast that there was some not-so-happy words from a certain Dutchman uh, after you pointed out that uh, big Renus, Renus VK's dad, uh, or Renus, I'm sorry, uh, VK is trying to be a big dog while he's still in training. Do you feel it's a potential conflict of interest that Ari is mentoring a driver while he's also a steward? Um, covered that a bit in uh, the guest show. I hope that you got a chance to hear that. I know I'm recording this after the guest show, but still wanted to uh, address this, knowing that not everybody's able to capture all the podcast nonsense I poop out each week. 
I wouldn't call it a conflict of interest in the sense that he's in race control and able to steer things in Renus's favor if there's a you know some sort of call to make whether Renus did something wrong. Um, I'd been told that he does recuse himself if Renus comes up and IndyCar president Jay Fry, who's in race control for the events, and fellow race steward Max Pappas, well, the two of them handle things, and Ari steps back. Uh, I was a little surprised when he told me that he does not recuse himself. He, he offers his thoughts, but he's not, the, he's not really involved in the final decision. That, that stood out to me as a little bit odd, um, and not because I think he would say something wrong, just blatantly in favor of Renus because he mentors the kid. I'd just say from a removing any and all perception of bias, right? You, what you don't want to do reputationally is give folks the ability to ask, are, uh, is there some ulterior motive? Could there be if there's a call where seemingly the majority might think Renus is at fault, should be penalized, and he isn't, and one of the race stewards also happens to be his mentor, I think from a a reputation standpoint, it would be amazingly smart to go that extra step of anything involving Renus, I turn my back, I zip my lips, I go outside and have some coffee, whatever it is, I'm truly out of the picture. You don't hear a word from me. Uh, That, I think would be the thing that makes sure nobody could question a thing. The fact that he's not a voting member of whether he the kid should or should not be penalized, but he's still speaking his mind, I might suggest, as someone who spent one year of my life as a race steward here for local road racing series, uh, give them nothing, absolutely no ammo to fire at you of course people can always fire at you but don't arm their artillery for them if they want to fire let them come up with their own ammo don't give them something they could latch on to and say so you're not voting but you still weigh in on the thing like that stood out as that really caught me as odd so from that part yeah integrity wise i don't i don't question ari uh, i've known him long enough and i think have a good enough feel for who he is from an integrity standpoint that you know as he mentioned when renus hit some of his crew members on pit lane at indy there were multiple grades of how to react to that uh levels of severity and Again, I, as we are told, he was not part of the final decision-making process, but the kid was not let off with a little slap on the wrist. So we, only, we don't really have a lot of examples to go from, Shauna, where we could say, oh, well, boy, is there a bias or is there whatever because Renus has done so many things that warrant um, being judged by race control. That hasn't been the case. But, yeah, to your point... I would say the more Ari does to make sure 
the world knows he's just out of the picture completely if and when Renus comes up and race control for a possible penalty. That'd be a, a good final tweak to make. Um, you also ask if there are any other retired or future retired drivers that could be interested in stepping into the race steward role whenever Max Pappas or Ari might decide to step away. Oh, I've got some ideas on who I think might be good at it, but the would they want to actually do it? That's really the biggest thing we need to, to visit here for 30 seconds, Shauna. Uh, as one of the kind folks sent in for a question for Ari, the, hey, haven't you led a really good life and won a bunch of things and, you know, hopefully earned a good living? Uh, uh, why do you want to keep doing this at your age where it's just slings and arrows and more hate than love? You know, he wants to do it. He's the perfect personality for it. I don't know of a lot of others I can think of uh, similar who would really want to step in and be the person receiving those slings and arrows. You know, could Dario, Dario Franchitti would be perfect. He's also got two beautiful daughters to raise and an amazing wife and uh, amazing career after racing. He'd be perfect for it. I'd slap him upside the head if he said he was going to do it because he'd be miserable. So I don't know. If, if anyone jumps out as having the will to just be in the crosshairs and deal with that, especially if they've had success, right? If you've got some driver like, well, you weren't very good, why are you in there? Those are the folks who tend not to get asked. Tends to be the ones that are highly respected. Usually the ones that are respected, had good careers, did well for themselves, probably don't exactly need the money. So... Yeah, I hope they don't retire anytime soon because I don't know who's going to fill in. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Keith Swanson. It says, MP, I haven't been able to get enough of the influx of talent the last few years mixing it up with the IndyCar establishment. What do you think about the current driver lineup dynamics in the series? And when was your favorite time period in that regard? I think that's really, really well spotted. Uh, absolutely well spotted keith we do have we're in a rich the the early stages of a very rich vein of young talent given the establishment even some of the old old lions giving them all the business they can handle and i love it uh yeah and, and as some of you know i spent a lot of my career a lot of my my formative years spent a long time on the what we'd now call the road to Indy, all those ladder series. And, and just that next generation talent thing has always been a big part of my life. So when I see the Patos and the Askews and the Pelos and the Colton Hurtas and the so-ons and so-ons, not just kind of there and, hey, a couple of years, they might be able to show something. Some of these guys are just taking it to them right away. And I, I can't get enough of it. If we're talking real youthful mix, and veteran mix, and if there was an era or period that I loved the most, yeah, really the the mid to late nineties was really strong in that regard. Very very early early part of the two thousands extended into that era as well. But just crazy talent coming in from indie lights, some from Europe. Um, heck, Montoya is a great example. Juan Montoya comes to America while he's a teenager from Colombia, 
learns to race at a driving school of all thing of all things um goes does his formative learn how to race here in the u.s the barber sob series really demonstrated an insane amount of talent goes to europe has dreams and aspirations of formula one does incredibly well there gets almost to the mountaintop doesn't pan out though reroutes back to america wins a championship adds an indy 500 to that f1 here we go the guy i mean we all have our opinions obviously but if there was a guy in equal cars who could have taken it to michael schumacher and beaten him uh i know plenty of us are are of the belief that juan monteria juan monteria would have been that guy so crazy crazy talent there then comes back here goes to nascar okay comes back to indycar now he's in sports cars but if you just think of that youthful travel wow how much talent does this guy have and we get to see it here as well in indycar you know that 94 to about 2001 2002 maybe extended a little bit another couple of years rope in a ryan hunter ray and maybe a couple others aj allmendinger and such uh the beloved late big man justin wilson uh, boy i tell you we were we were really really blessed in this specific regard so i have huge love for this time period alex and nardi coming in and so on and so forth by then he's a vet you know a veteran but new to us i wouldn't sleep on what we have right now though keith i really wouldn't if you look on the the threats that the pups are making on the uh the the establishment as you mentioned here i think we're going to be looking back at this era as well uh knowing that there's some more badasses coming up kyle kirkwood right (laughs) we should be talking about kyle celebrating right about now his indy lights championship and who is he going to drive for next year right this is the the reigning indy pro 2000 championship winner this is a kid following right behind oliver askew this is a kid because of covid indie light season being canceled and whatnot he's been totally in left field running lmp3 cars and imsa and such it's a way to earn some money and and you know keep your muscles moving and, and your reaction going but this is a kid who without covid I don't know if there is any question if he'd be Indy Lights champion this year, driving for Andretti Autosport, and then hopefully getting ready to move up to IndyCar with them. Um, He's going to have to hopefully get back on track next year and do it then, and we'll get him a little bit after that. But, you know, that's a kid who should be scaring the hell out of people based on the trends he's demonstrated in the junior formula. It's a kid from Canada, Devlin DeFrancesco, who... Young spent most of his open wheel time in Europe. He's come back, been really impressing the heck out of myself and others in Indy Pro 2000. Spoke about him in an article today with Michael Andretti. Michael's thinking, well, you know, although he's doing so well right away, we probably need to put another year of training under him before we think about IndyCar, probably 2022. But that's another kid who uh, I think is going to surprise folks if he keeps developing at that rate. Daniel Frost, 
Stingray Rob winning a bunch of races in Indy Pro 2000 now. Uh, Linus Lindqvist. We've got Christian Rasmussen. We've, I mean, there's a lot of talent coming. And behind them, we don't even know because we haven't met them on the road to Indy level. But there's, we're, we're in a good place, Keith. That's among the key things that keeps me wake up waking up in the morning and looking forward to doing what I do, knowing that there's so much young talent here and even more on the way. A Daniel Summers Gill. How you doing, Daniel? How successful do you feel the double race format has been this season? Do you think more double races than a normal season will be a thing next season? And if so, will this mean a reduction in overall events? Will the season go beyond the mid-September finish of recent years? Don't know about timing of finishing the season, Daniel. I, as I understand it, continue to hear that next year should be pretty much a normal year in terms of scheduling. The duel at Detroit, the doubleheader there, I believe that's going to continue. I know that at least one track that has held a doubleheader this year has inquired, that has not before, has inquired about whether it would be possible to do that again. I think by and large, though, we're going to see a schedule that's, call it a pre-COVID schedule of just normal single headers compared to double headers. Do I think it's been successful? I think round ones of the two round weekends, those have certainly been the more entertaining uh, by and large. We have this dynamic that you know about, which is with COVID, testing has been cut off completely. Sessions have been drastically reduced. So instead of, say, for a normal three-day weekend at a road, America, we do two practice sessions on Friday, another one Saturday morning. We then do a qualifying session. By the time we get to the race, who knows, there might even be a warm-up in there somewhere. By the time we get to the race, we've had between four and five on-track sessions where teams are just studying profusely, making all kinds of little notes and corrections and optimizations so that by the time we get to the race, those cars are really tack sharp. Well, we haven't had all that, so there's been a wider variety of performance levels during the first races. Usually we'll get one practice session, go into qualifying, the format they've been doing, I I love quite a bit. Um, And then we go race. And so the first race, again, more often than not, and I know that this also extends between road courses and ovals, first race tends to be the one that's a little more dynamic and fun. The cars haven't had a lot of laps. The cars haven't, but teams haven't had a lot of laps. Engineers, drivers, to really do that normal level of honing and refining so that all the cars are within, you know, one percentile of one another in terms of peak performance capabilities. So you get, I don't know, I'm making it up, 3% variability or whatever it is, but that first race, we aren't very well studied for this final test. That's where we've often seen more fun and more surprises. But you do that first race, and if it's 250 laps on an oval or 75 on a road course or whatever it is, That ends up being the most meaningful on-track session of the event so far for the teams. They learn a ton. And as a result, as we've often seen, if not almost seen pretty much 
every single instance this year. We hold that second race the second day. Eh, eh, not so compelling because these cars have had all those laps, all those miles, all the data and information coming in so that the chassis setup changes, aero changes, whatever changes that get applied for the second race, get rid of that two, three, four, five percent variability from the first car to the last car. And all of a sudden everyone's on what feels like almost an even playing field. And what happens when you're on a even playing field and mostly spec cars, you don't get a lot of passing. Don't get a lot of excitement. You don't get a lot of difference. So yeah, I would say if we're just talking, getting through a season by doubling up where we can to have at least 14 races to call it a proper championship, big success by doing these double headers just strictly as a fan looking at the quality of racing i would say tell me there's two double headers left on the calendar at mid ohio and indianapolis and i'm really looking forward to race one in both instances and would almost bet a lot of money that race twos at both might not be the most memorable of the two uh let's go to tony chef 20 i love screen names on reddit by the way uh i know i mention that every month or so i don't understand most of them but that's what makes it fun uh it says i know we're not even through this crazy season yet but do you think there will be some new tracks especially ovals on the docket for next year says the decline in the number of ovals per year is disheartening and to me it's what makes indycar unique and special totally agree uh I didn't grow up with ovals, grew up with road racing and was not someone who really fully understood ovals for a lot of my youth, but came to love them once I got to go to some and understand them. So I'm with you, Tony. Uh, We would hope and expect Richmond will be back next year. And when I say back, it was on this year's calendar, never happened, but We're hoping it'll be back on the calendar for next year, so that would add one. I don't know of any others in terms of ovals really in the mix for next year. Uh, If we're talking just new tracks in general, we know that the uh, Music City event, the Nashville street course, sure looks like it's moving forward. Um, I don't know if we're going to see anything really that stretches beyond those two items as new events that we'll be heading to. If there is, uh, I'm going to raise my hand whenever it gets announced and say, boy, as a guy who's supposed to be a reporter and learn the stuff and know it, I have failed massively because it's total news to me. Let's go to Matt Anderson. Hey, Matt, uh, and thank you for sending this in again. It's another thing I mentioned as well. If you sent in a question and I didn't get to it, uh, doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean it wasn't a good question. It just means trying to keep us to about an hour and a half per episode here and yeah uh, not able to get to everything so like matt if you want me to get to it send it in again uh on my weekly sports car show i think the biggest number was four times someone sent something in and each repost was more hostile than the last and that's actually a recommendation the more you insult me hey you idiot would you answer this thing finally 
It catches my attention. I love it. Uh, Matt says, what do you think Penske's, quote, Sophie's choice would be if in the future a similar outcome of the Indy 500 were to happen with one of his teams similar to what happened in 2002? He says, if he believed he was the rightful winner, would he still keep to push his win at the expense of risking the credibility of the series with him now being the team owner, uh, a team owner and series owner and track owner? He says, or would he give up another cherished win for the sake of the series so that he wouldn't be viewed as the Andy Evans of IndyCar. Oh, that's a, that's a deep B-side of a 45 reference, maybe even a 78 RPM record there, Andy, on the... Andy, I just called you Andy, Matt. On the Andy Evans reference, I think this one's pretty simple and straightforward. I believe Roger would let it go. I really, really do. Coming back to Ari and reputation and all those things. I don't think Roger would give up easily. I don't think it'd be something where he said, yeah, just let it go, cool, whatever, get him again next year. I don't think he would walk through that process, uh, the, the seven stages. I don't think he'd walk through those stages as quickly as that, but I do believe he would look at the what's in the best interest of the sport thing you can't have the headline guy who owns the whole thing protests his employees who run the thing for him so he could be ruled the winner at the biggest race in the series that he owns at the track that he owns so I realize that that's a surface comment, right? That that's just superficial uh, awareness and thought. But the flip side is he would say, look, I have stepped back from running the team. Tim Sindrick does that. Tim Sindrick is filing the protest. I'm just going to let that stand. And uh if he decides to hire lawyers and turn this into a huge court battle well again uh, i'm you know signing whatever you need me to sign to make you confident that i'm not involved in any way but technically since i own the team uh he is kind of spending money in my name with a business that i own i mean do i think he would let that kind of thing happen if we had this contentious elio castro neves or paul tracy 2002 scenario who won make this a litigious thing i do not think he would Uh, i even had one team owner not going to mention a name but i had one team owner that may or may not have been in the same engine supply camp as roger offer a suggestion to me after the indy 500 where honda just dominated chevrolet that this was a known concern coming into the race and Roger intentionally just said, Hey, I'm in charge now. I can't be getting in. I can't be, I'm not going to weigh in on any of this stuff and try and push back on whatever, or see if I can tip the scales, balance them a little more. So, uh, our side can have a better chance at winning. I didn't agree with that team owner. Uh, I thought it was a half cocked conspiracy theory. But I did find it interesting that at least one team owner, Matt, wasn't the same scenario that you've mentioned here, but it was a, 
hey, the guy who owns the series, who owns the track, who co-founded Ilmore Engineering, which builds Chevrolet's IndyCar motors, who in theory would probably be the most powerful voice in getting something to change or improve or whatever so that his team using those Chevy engines has a better shot at either earning pole or winning the race, um, has seen how the cards have played out and has decided to not use that leverage and influence to try and improve their odds of winning the Indy 500. I thought that was, it was a telling thing. It also tells me, Matt, that you're not the only one thinking about such things. Even those on pit lane uh, are wondering how would Roger handle such a thing. And uh, I have to believe, although the man loves Indy 500 seemingly more than anybody, if thrown into another 2002 type scenario, gotta believe that he would lay back because if he didn't, uh, yeah, that that's not just personal reputation that, that is at risk. That's the integrity of the whole series. That's a thing that has other manufacturers, teams, partners, sponsors, TV, you name it saying, uh, no, uh, we know where to find WWE, we know sports entertainment where the outcome is manipulated or predetermined or heavily influenced uh, to achieve a desired outcome. And we don't pay a lot of our own money to come here and compete uh, on merit to then have someone who owns all the toys potentially put a lot of heavy resources into defending something where they could be the winner. So, yeah, uh, love the question. I love these little kind of let's wander off and get into the uh, the ether uh, and see where we end up. Uh, let's see. Robbie Berggren says, Marshall on Scott Dixon's Wikipedia page, there's a statement that he, since he managed to win a race in 2005, he earned himself a new contract instead of being let go. He says, I can't find anything on Google that backs us up. In 2005, was squarely in the era when I pretended the IRL didn't exist and only Champ Car did. Do you remember reading anything about this? I do not, Robbie. I've heard about this. I don't remember reading about this. Um, if my man Robin Miller wasn't really busy this week tending to more important things in the home front, I would have reached out and asked him what he remembered. He has a steel trap for a mind, by the way. I have jello-based brain matter uh, in that capacity. Would say... If we're thinking back to 2005, and I apologize, I'm actually going to pull up the Googs, the Google, during the show here, which I, I really try not to do that ever, but sometimes I got to do it. Uh, I seem to believe Toyota Power was the thing in 2005 with Dixie at Ganassi. Am I wrong, though? Um, yeah, no, they were indeed on Toyota Power uh, through 2005, switched to Honda in 2006. Um, the last year uh, of, well, it wasn't just the last year, but in particular the last year of Toyota's participation in the IRL. 2005, I think they changed it formally to the IndyCar series, but what we know is back then is more or less the mostly oval IRL they did start to throw in a couple of road courses in 2005. That was the last year, Robbie, of Toyota's participation 
And I know this from memory, but also from Dixie telling me <laughs> in very vocal terms, uh, they knew they were getting out and they threw in the towel financially. So instead of uh, continuing to spend a ton to try and match Honda, um, they decided that they, hey, we know we're getting out the end of the year. There is no need for us to waste crazy money and the results absolutely reflected it uh, especially on ovals uh, where it's a, a power horsepower and aerodynamic drag war um, they lost the war and badly uh, you look at the ovals that year in 2005 and i mean they were just running around with an anchor being it wasn't an anchor because a drag just the motor was not even close to what it needed to be. So the cool thing to come from this, though, and you may know this part of the story, Robbie, but maybe some others don't. So Scott Dixon is and has been for a long time been regarded as the master of fuel conservation. And not just from a how much fuel he can save while driving, but running up front, winning races, being in the hunt, maintaining the same speed as the leaders while also saving more fuel than them. It's a, the craziest contradiction. How is it you're going as fast as the leaders, if not leading and maybe winning while using less fuel and using the throttle less? How do you do that? He does it. Well, this skill that moved him into this top of the food chain skill came by and large from 2005 and uh, he's told me the story he's told many other reporters the story of well we did not have the power to win (laughs) we just didn't so the only thing i could do to try and give us a chance was to learn all the different ways to save fuel while making speed and so whether it is being efficient with how you use the throttle and modulate the throttle instead of stepping on it abruptly and on and off and on and off and having these big squirts of fuel being thrown into the combustion chamber. It's really smooth rolling onto the throttle, really smooth rolling off. But it's also another thing, which is just an exceptional part, Robbie, of Scott Dixon's skill set that makes him so unique. It's, If we're thinking an oval, flying down the front straight, and maybe there's a need to lift. Maybe Phoenix, if I'm thinking about that, or Richmond, or whatever, turn one, turn three, Milwaukee. Well, Dixon has the ability to carry outrageous speed super, super far into the corner and have rolling speed, as it's called. So where he's off the throttle, the car, he's basically coasting at insanely high speeds. And that is something that not a lot of drivers can deal with. Because when you're not on the throttle, you're not loading the chassis. Uh, You're not using the engine's power and torque to help rotate the car through the corner. It's kind of floating free a little bit. Many drivers, I don't want to say most drivers, but I know for a fact, many drivers, it's an area that they either 
shy away from or just are not comfortable living within Dixon <laughs> Dixon has this capability and used it to massive effect in 2005 so that instead of accelerating really hard down the front straight then lifting a little bit to slow the get the car slowed down and then romping back on the throttle to accelerate through turn one and again whatever oval he would carry crazy speed into the corner deeper usually than others do his lift off the throttle and coast maintaining that high rate of rolling speed and instead of the charge hard brake turn boom back on the throttle he would eliminate that whole middle section of throttle manipulation slowing the car over slowing it knowing that he'd use the throttle and therefore fuel to reaccelerate he would just carry more and higher speed through the corner before getting back onto the throttle you do that lap after lap and guess what you are saving stupid amounts of fuel because you're able to float through that corner the guy has probably some of the all-time greatest car control to catch any little slides and wiggles as the chassis a little bit unloaded and not totally planted but keeping it <laughs> pointed in the right direction and so this was the show that he put on robbie in 2005 where in many instances you never knew it because he finished 10th 13th 15th whatever but any other person would have finished 20th or 25th and so it's these series of just miraculous performances that no one really understood or got to see for the most part never really had a chance to appreciate what was going on inside the car because you know we're not riding with him but what he was doing turned a turd of a motor into something where he saved so much fuel that he gave his team options for pit stops when do we stop how long do those pit stops last hey if we take the green flag and there are no yellows and we everyone basically pits in around the same time because we're all using we have the same fuel limitations same amount in the cars well what happens when everyone comes to pit lane and he decides to stop with say the majority of the field and picks up one, two, three, five positions because, well, his tank wasn't as empty. <laughs> Therefore, he didn't need to spend as long on pit lane waiting for fuel to go in. Well, if you can't pass him on the racetrack, but you can save crazy amounts of fuel to give you the opportunity to leapfrog cars on pit lane, and hopefully, who knows, maybe there's a yellow, maybe those cars don't pass you right back the same way. Or if there is a yellow when you pit, you're pretty much always guaranteed to move forward because you don't have to wait as long sitting stationary for all fuel to fill an empty tank. This is where those skills came from. So getting back to your question, uh, the earning a contract part, I'll have to ask. Like they were going to get rid of him. Um, I mean, part of me thinks there might have been a kicker in a contract that says if I win, I'm automatically back for X amount of time. Those are not uncommon at all. Um, heck, when the Chip Ganassi Ford GT factory team 
won at their 24 Hours of Le Mans debut in 2016. That was originally a two-year contract, Robbie. It was 2016-2017. There was a kicker in the contract that said, if we win for you on our Le Mans debut, we automatically get a two-year extension. And they did. (laughs) And they raced for two more years. It ended up being a four-year factory program wound down the end of last year. I'm just hypothesizing here. A little bit of a hypothesis, maybe, but was there a kicker that said, if I win, I get extended for however many years? I don't know. Was there really a threat of Dixon being let go? That would surprise me. Uh, That would really surprise me because the quality or lack of quality with the Toyota engines back then, they were well known. So if a guy like Dixon is struggling, um, yeah, there weren't uh, a lot of people, I think, that would have pointed at him as being the source of the problem and therefore said, all right, you're out of here. But uh, next time I get a chance to ask, I will. Uh, Where do we go? We don't have a ton of questions left here, which for this part one, I think might not be the worst thing in the world. We're at about an hour and 15 or so. Let's go to David Cubine. Uh, says MP technical question. So I know downforce is measured in pounds, but when we hear a downforce number given for an IndyCar, is that at a particular standard speed? It's an awesome question, David. He says since we uh, since there would be more or less downforce depending on how fast the car is traveling. Uh, as always, wishing improved health for your wife. Thank you, man. Yeah. So when you hear those numbers, five thousand pounds of downforce, it's always at two hundred miles an hour. That is is and has been the standard reference forever that I know of, that I recall as well. So, yeah, it's at 200 miles an hour. So we know that right now, I apologize, it's 10.40 p.m. That's the excuse I'm going to go with. It's not really, but one, but I'll use it anyways. Uh, what are we at it? mid ohio with maximum downforce i think it's like 4850 pounds or something like that that is indeed at 200 miles an hour now to your exact point when (laughs) when someone pulls onto pit lane and hit the speed pit lane speed limiter and they're doing 50 miles an hour whatever it is are they generating 4850 pounds of downforce of course not so it is a speed-based thing. It increases with speed, decreases with a reduction in speed. But the the peak numbers, this being the standard that you mention, uh, it's always measured against uh, or measured at two hundred miles an hour. So that's the that's the standard. The practical information is also there though david so when we talk about hey what is you know uh, what are we looking at for downforce trim at this race at that race whatever number you hear we know that that's at 200 miles an hour there are some tracks like indianapolis cars are really never below 200 miles an hour at indy i mean in traffic maybe but by and large most cars lapping they're never below 200 miles an hour so you know, could that number be a little bit higher? Potentially. Um, we know that there are some tracks where they absolutely never get to 200 miles an hour. Mid-Ohio being one of them. 
Uh, so that peak number will never be reached. But it's not as if the teams don't know what kind of downforce they're actually making at every foot of the track. And so that's the fun part in having stared at that information uh, for many years in one of my former IndyCar team roles as an assistant engineer uh, or in other whatever that I've done as race engineer where you have strain gauges to look at that data. And just another little technical note here, maybe for those who aren't aware, uh, great for those who are, uh, I don't know, uh, entertain yourself for a minute or two. So strain gauges are pretty darn cool. Those are load devices, uh, little electronic load devices that are installed in the push rods, the four push rods that connect the suspension from the lower A-arm at all four corners of the cars to the rocker arm, which then twists and compresses the damper and springs. And so with this little electronic load device uh, welded in and installed in the four push rods, teens will zero those prior to the start of practice. They won't necessarily zero it before every practice session, but uh, they'll make sure that it gets zeroed usually more than once per weekend. And what is interesting is by zeroing the load sensors, the strain gauges sitting on the uh, chassis setup pad, it eliminates the vehicle's weight from the equation. So by zeroing the four strain gauges with the car just sitting on the setup pad as it's about to go out and, and compete, usually you'll have ballast put in the car as well, right? The driver's weight, for example, will be in the car to replicate their weight. That'll get zeroed out. So sitting on pit lane before the car rolls out for the session with the driver in it and the fuel and whatever else, you look at your strain gauges through telemetry, and again, they're basically sitting at zero. And then when the car rolls out and you start lapping and you start producing speed, well, you can sit there and watch real time. Watch those four strain gauge telemetry channels, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's truly fascinating to sit there and see the this invisible force, aerodynamic downforce being produced and that force of suction pulling down and seeing those numbers start to appear from each strain gauge, a hundred pounds, a thousand pounds, whatever it might be in whatever vehicle we're talking about. It's fascinating. And you can absolutely see how much downforce the car is making, not only just at the individual corners, but also front and back. Uh, There are a bunch of math channels that get written And so from this strain gauge information, you get the live data channel. Again, it's it's a channel where mathematical formulas are written uh, to produce it, where you get something you might have also heard of, COP, center of pressure. And so using the live streaming telemetry data coming back as the car moves around the course every fraction of a second of every lap, Those four strain gauges through this math channel, giving information back to the engineers on pit lane, also the driver as well, depending on what they want to see in terms of data on their dash that they can 
scroll through or just have the information given over the radio to them. And this will tell them, hey, we now granted they're not speaking in as simple terms, but when they're talking about COP figures and what they're seeing and whether changes might be made, what they're referring to is, aha, the data coming back from the two front strains and the two rear strains tell us the loading is this amount of weight at the front and this amount of weight at the rear. And there's a difference. And what is the percentage? What is the percentage difference front to rear? And looking at this, if they add some front wing to the car to increase front downforce, well, all of a sudden that percentage, the fulcrum of downforce will move forward. And through the strain gauge information, they can look at and determine where within the chassis from nose to tail, the true center of aerodynamic pressure pulling down on the car happens to be. And if they add some front wing to the car uh, during, you know, maybe come in during a practice session, want to make a change, car will go out and through the data, you can absolutely see those percentages change front to rear. Now there's more downforce at the front. Well, the center of pressure has moved forward. And again, just like a fulcrum, is it what the driver likes in terms of balance, how balanced they feel the front tires and rear tires happen to be while they're out there lapping and going as quickly as they can. And so you'll hear drivers comment about the COP feels off. It's too much front, too much rear. Could we go a quarter percent, a half, whatever might we, I feel like we need to go, forwards or backwards on COP a little bit. The drivers feel that, so that's just live sensation coming into their body from their butt and steering wheel and eyes and you name it. But there's also a, a data-driven, numerically-driven number that uh, the engineers are receiving through telemetry, through the strains, to quantify. So they can say, hey, we're seeing the COP is here on entry to this really important corner uh, and this, and you're saying that you like or dislike what you're feeling from the COP upon turn in. Okay. Well, we're going to make an adjustment that will move it again, forwards or backwards, whatever the driver says they believe they need. And we'll go out, do a test run and then look and see, and the car will spit back those numbers that'll be run through the math channel and tell them where the COP exactly how much it has moved forward or backwards fractions of a percent, whatever it might be. And they can quantify that. Hey, at this percentage, Oh man, not really loving it. Think we need more COP up front. They'll make a change to move it up front and they'll see what that number is and listen to the driver feedback. So we start to correlate, aha, feel versus number. Maybe I know with this driver that I'm working with now, David, they tend to like a car with COP that leans a little bit more in this direction than that direction. And so when we go to a totally different road course, but has some corners that are maybe a vaguely similar to the one that we were just, the track we were running at, might have an idea where you want to start off on that COP based on your driver's preferences and feedback. 
how do you know what you're aiming for? Coming back to those four strain gauges that help you understand downforce, what's being produced, and then all the cool stuff that those math channels give you. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to two more, and then we're going to say farewell for this episode, and I'm going to try tomorrow, which is going to be, I think I mentioned, a bit of a long day for my wife and I. Hopefully when we get home in the afternoon, I can knock out part two of your questions. Uh, we're going to go to Joel Cram. Hey, Joel. says, if a driver only wins eight races his entire career, also mention her entire career, uh, but they are all 8,500 wins, is he or she a Hall of Famer? Um, yes. <laughs> 100%. And I'm not laughing at you or, or anything. I'm laughing just because it's like, yes. Um, let's talk about Danny Sullivan. I love me some Danny Sullivan. He and I, I, I tell you, um, I just got all the time in the world for, for Danny talking about racing, even some life stuff as well. Um, did you know that the 1985 spin and win Indy 500 winner is also the 1988 CART IndyCar Series champion. If you were there, you might remember that. Or if you're really keen on knowing your IndyCar history, you might remember that. But I'd put pretty decent odds on the fact that when folks think about Danny Sullivan, they think about him being the 1985 Indy 500 winner and any other races he won, any the championship that he won, in a brutally tough year. Uh, yeah, whatever. Cool. That's, that's nice. Uh, by the way, so yeah, let's talk about Indy and that win again. Um, the fact that someone might win eight races their entire career and they're all Indy 500s, you'd first of all have the greatest performer of all time by double. I mean, you have someone who's won as many races as A.J. Foyt and Rick Mears combined at the 500, so that would be... Uh, they'd be, they'd have a good shot at the Hall of Fame there, Joel. Even if it's only half of that, even if it's only three, uh, I mean, there are a lot of drivers who've won two Indy 500s. Not a lot, but I mean, there's enough. I'd say three is the threshold to say, even if you've never won any other race <laughs> and uh, you've got three Indy 500s, no championships, no whatever else. Are you Hall of Fame? I mean, come on, right? Elio Castro Neves, 20 years an IndyCar driver, zero championships, 3,500 wins. Is he a Hall of Famer? I have no question in my mind he will be inducted into all kinds of Hall of Fames the moment he retires because of his achievements and the enormity of, of the value attached to those Indy 500 wins. So I would say so, Joel. What I would love to hear, and I know that this is a question you threw in for me, I'd love maybe in the next uh, episode throw in a question or throw in, I should say, a rebuttal of what you think. So to me, there's no question. I mean, eight, again, that'd be the craziest life ever, but even I think just three guarantees you to be I mean, think of Johnny Rutherford, Lone Star JR, three-time Indy 500 winner. Unless you're really hardcore with your history or were there, 
tell me about the other wins in his career. Tell me about championships. Tell me about all kinds of, and he's had an amazing career and done achieved so many things. But after those three and 500 wins, most people couldn't tell you a thing other than the guy's a badass and a hall of famer. Uh, we're going to close the show. I think we're going to close the show. Where are we at? Yeah, we're at about an hour and a half. Just, just about perfect. Um, we've got a couple other questions. Who knows? We'll see if I can, uh, I might get to one or two others here, uh, real quickly. Um, Takate Renard from Reddit MP. Remember the Toyota LEDs that Newman Haas ran on their wheels in 2002. They said Toyota and had the company logo as well. Whatever happened to those thought they were pretty sweet. You and I are in total agreement here. And I don't know, maybe it's cause I'm an idiot or I'm kind of a crow who likes shiny objects. Um, I thought they were pretty darn cool as well. And for those who saw them, I think most people remember them because they were so unique. Now, if every car had them, yeah, of course, it'd probably lose anything that was truly special about it. But I don't know what happened to them. I don't know why no one else picked up on it. I don't know if the company that made those went out of business. I don't know the answer, but I know that it was such a cool little moment in time where folks it was just totally brand new technology no one had seen and even though it's just dumb led lights going on around and around on a wheel spelling out a name and chucking up the toyota logo it just it was so cool uh it it also was very fast and furious and glowy and such so i think it really super fit the uh fit the times uh you know, if I was smart, I would have thrown these in uh, at the beginning because, let's see, I liked uh, one or two of them. Um, let's see, where can I find... Apologies here, I guess. I'm just uh, scrolling and trying to find the stuff here. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, Feeder Series, uh, Road to Indy. Should they go to a Halo or Aeroscreen, and, and when should they? Also says, get well soon to Braden Eves, who had a, a pretty bad crash at uh, the Indy Road course here recently. Now has a GoFundMe page to try and, uh, I guess, get his career back uh, going when he's able to. Um, and it's been cool to see some folks support Braden. Obvious answer to the question is yes, they need to be here for next year. Less obvious answer, how do you pay for that? Because this is not the extravagantly sponsored, high-profile type cars like IndyCar. These are the, oh, we don't really have enough F USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000 cars and Indy Lights cars. Folks talk about costs being way too much, and that's why car counts aren't outrageous. Uh, and now we got to pay for this for each car. Uh, that might be too much to ask. It's not too much to ask in terms of do we care about uh, the young men and women racing on the road to Indy it is a question, though, of where does the money come from? I know it's again, one of those esoterical things. Well, Roger Penske is a billionaire. He could pay for it all. Sure, the guy could spend all of his money on fighting cancer, leukemia, hunger, uh, heat, right? Uh, it's the really awkward thing, Ryan, of, of course all these kids should have halos and aero screens and, you know, Braden fractured vertebrae in his neck 
a photo of his helmet, of it scraping on the ground. Uh, I mean, frightening stuff. It doesn't change the fact that this is going to be a significant cost per car. I don't know what the number would be for these smaller cars, but I know for on the IndyCar level, these are $60,000 a piece. Six zero. I don't know what you all make per year. Sixty grand. That is not a small expenditure. I would believe it'd have to be, who knows, half of that maybe on the road to Indy level. Maybe 40%. I don't know, but we're still talking... 15, 20,000, maybe 25, 30 again. I don't know what the number is, but that's a lot per car. And this year, coming out of COVID, yada, yada, all the things we know needs to happen, has to happen quickly as possible. I just don't know how we get there financially. And that's always the question, right, Ryan? That's always the problem. Think of all the issues in the world and how the majority of them could be so easily solved with funding. Well, this is another one of them, but also one that's probably going to fall into those vast majority of problems that could be solved with money, where I don't know how this gets solved in a timely manner. Uh, let's see, where else are we going to go? Uh, our man from Holland, Peter Nutt, you're going to be the final questionnaire of this episode says is there a rivalry developing between renus vk and colton herta i would assume that's coming off of indy cars visit to gateway where they had some not so pleasant words after there was contact made i don't know if rivalry is a word um the word i would use i think renus is crazy talented i think if he was Colton's teammate at Andretti Autosport, we'd have a better feel as to whether there is a real possibility of a rivalry. I mean, the quality between the two teams, there's a little bit of a difference right now. Colton sitting fifth in the championship, right? Uh, so, two time race winner, mature beyond his years, so on and so forth. Renus, very mature, also still has a ton to learn. Um, I don't know if I'd put the two of them in direct rivalry mode yet. Could I see that becoming a thing? Potentially, especially if they run into each other on more occasions. Um, maybe this isn't the, the second episode of the questions that our, my man Tim Falkwitz put together, but there was also a, a question, I believe, about, well, Colton walked back a lot of the comments he made at Gateway, and so does that maybe reframe thoughts on whether uh, VK was the bad guy or at fault or, you know, yada, yada, yada. And maybe that's there. And I'm just stealing it for there and paraphrasing Peter. I know you're not the one who asked it, but, um, that's the thing that those kinds of things bug me a little bit because it's picking and choosing comments to then use as a blanket assessment. Um, Colton never walked back anything about being hit by, Renus by Renus driving too aggressively. He didn't, at least that I saw, never changed any opinion or stance on those things. And I'm in full agreement with him, coincidentally, on those assertions. He did say, from what I saw on social media, hey, and you know, looking back at it, I probably would have done the same thing, meaning gone for the same kind of pass. 
nowhere did he say, oh, and I'd hit the guy and potentially wreck him and just be happy with it. Uh, none of that was said. Um, the overly aggressive manner that Renus approached Colton in trying to get by is where he took issue. He was mad at the whole scenario right after the race and said so and went to Renus and told him, hey, man, this is not the way to get down. And after the race said, yeah, hindsight, I probably would have gone for the same kind of pass. Never gave an excuse for getting hit or being overly aggressive in that exchange, which led to being hit. Um, I read some other comments. I don't know if there are questions for the show about, well, uh, Colton should have lifted because he messed up. Uh, I think Paul Tracy mentioned something, which a lot of folks glommed on to that. Well, Colton blew it in turn one and uh, was slow, and uh, it was his fault because he messed up in turn one and you know something along those lines. And I'm like, no, that's just idiotic. Of course, he made a mistake. Renus got a great run on him. Renus should have been able to pass him. He did. The whole issue here is, hey, rookie, be safe when you're doing this. Probably not the same comment that will be offered if he hit somebody two years from now, three years from now. These are specifically the kinds of things that you overemphasize over-dramatize and are unwavering about with rookies. So I know Renus's dad got mad and took issue with my comments, I think, in the last podcast one before. Whatever. I don't frankly give a shit, but, uh, you know, everyone has their opinions. Cool. Um, there's a reason that Alexander Rossi, Ryan hunter Ray, and Colton Herta, coincidentally all three Andretti Autosport drivers, have a fairly low opinion of Renus on ovals right now, and it's because of his driving demeanor and behavior, which has been expressed as being too aggressive, too zero-sum, too high-risk, and it's all because they want the kid to race with the same care that they do. Are they all perfect? They make zero mistakes. Do some of them go overboard? Some, Of course. Percentage odds would tell you no one's ever going to be perfect in that regard. But it's just a bit of the passing down being hard on the rookies who folks feel are running a little bit of foul of the accepted norm of how to play the game or run the race or do whatever it is in a risky, high-risk, potentially life-threatening form of sport. It happens in football. It happens in basketball. It happens in all major sports where, yeah, I could try and tackle you around the knees, and I'll get you to the ground, and you might fumble the football. I could also, at the same time, blow out your knee, if not both knees, and end your career. I can do that to you, but you know, if I do that to you, the next guy is probably going to do it to me. And then guess what? We no longer have football because everybody is rehabbing from blown out knees or their careers are ended because muscles and tendons and are shredded. So we're going to mutually agree that we're going to tackle a little higher or a little lower 
and not put major limbs and I'm sorry, major joints at risk. And I know that there are some rules in place and what, but I'm just saying, look, every football player knows that there are things they can do to end one another's careers. And if you have rookies that are acting out and not adhering to the accepted, take care of one another, a, a social agreement, sporting agreement, you tend to get a, a pretty harsh backlash. Baseball, look, the way you are sliding into a base, you can absolutely use those cleats to rip someone's shin, calf. You, I mean, there's a variety of ways. Pick the sport in how you do things where you can absolutely blow people's careers up. Racing is the same thing. And for those who've done it for a couple of years, or especially the veterans for a long time, there's a little bit of the the maintaining of sportsmanship, sportspersonship. And I would say this is what this incident falls under. I know I've discussed it a couple times. It's been brought up a couple times. keeps being brought up. Uh, Renus's dad doesn't want to hear it. Whatever. No one's picking on Renus. The kid's a phenomenal talent. He's going to go far. I think has the potential to be a future champion. Like the kid is that, has that much talent. When someone in their first year in particular, maybe second, who knows, is doing things that is tripping the alarm of some of the veterans who know the code of conduct that is expected, especially on ovals in our sport, and they see it happen more than once, you're going to get angry responses and pushback. And it's real, but there's also an aspect of trying to be a good shepherd and steward to make sure that you bring everyone into line. I think that, and I'll just say your name, Peter, even though you're not the guy who's mentioned this, but I think that, Peter, is certainly something that your young countrymen who are all rooting for and have so much belief in, I think that might be the one aspect that maybe has not been taken home by the family. Uh, Those drivers aren't picking on Renus. They're trying to say, hey, come do this like the rest of us agree to do it. Because if you don't, that's when we start putting each other at, at really unacceptable risks. So maybe that'll sink in. We have no more ovals this year, so uh, hopefully it'll really sink in. But I think that's the spirit here that maybe some have missed the point of. It's just trying to get a rookie to understand from the veterans how you're supposed to play. And if you don't play the right way, uh, they're going to get in your ear. Guess what? I'm done being in your ear. Uh, We're going to say farewell. We're going to say thank you to you for the great questions. Went a little bit longer than an hour and a half here, obviously, but... There were a number of questions after the cutoff here that I decided, well, let's bring a couple of those in because y'all deserve it. And I suck for not getting this done until too late in the week. So thanks again. Really awesome questions. Rebecca, if you're still listening, you're crazy. First of all, hopefully the unpolished turd of a show here wasn't too crappy. It's just a loose conversational thing filled with errors. And I love it. Um, welcome to IndyCar. I hope that you stay. And to the rest of you, either first-time questionnaires as well or uh, the dedicated faithful who send in stuff almost every week, thank you. 
I really do enjoy doing this. The fact that I'm going to be hitting the stop button at 10 minutes after 11 p.m. on a Thursday night, I don't actually mind that because this is actually a little bit of a slice of my time uh, where I get to just come into the office while my amazing wife is uh, doing a little bit of pampering and get to talk to y'all and answer your questions. Finally, thank you. Thank you, Justice Brothers, Cooper Tires, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA for supporting the silliness. Everything willing. We'll get part two done here tomorrow evening. File that, and then we're going to go racing on Saturday and Sunday, the Honda Indy 200, Mid-Ohio.